I just remind us before we pray that all throughout the service, we, as a church, are worshiping together. And just sitting under the word last week, I was reminded how much we're called to participate in this time now. That none of us would simply be hearers of the word, but that we would be actively, actively engaged in the worship of God right now through feasting upon his word. We have the privilege of hearing from God. This is food for our souls. So let's, let's go to him now and let's ask that he would help us to, to feed on Christ by faith and hear from him. Let's do that. God, we would pray for your help now. That you would have not just our ears, but our hearts and minds and soul. And that you would feed us by your word. That we might become more like Christ. And that we might live for his glory. And that we would do this for our joy. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Have you ever thought, what am I doing here? Is this really where I want to be? When it comes to your life or work, it's important that you know your why. You know, the, the reason behind what you do. A person's why has proven to be one of the greatest determining factors of their success. So what's your why? You may not have one yet, but if you do, how do you know it's good enough? And in the end, what does it really matter? Whether it's someone stuck at the bottom of the rat race and wanting out, or Rockefeller at the very top saying, just a little more. The teacher's cry in Ecclesiastes rings true to all of us at times in this life. Meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. What are we all really looking for? Well, God knows. Jesus knows. And our passage this morning helps deliver us from the emptiness of life. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 6, verse 22. John 6.22, and if you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 947. 947, if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters, the smaller numbers are the verses. And this morning we're looking at chapter 6, verses 22 through 40. Chapter 1, John the Baptist and his disciples all testify that Jesus is the Messiah. That's God's promised deliverer and king. Then in chapters 2 through 4, Jesus is presented as being able to bring the blessings of God's kingdom into this world. And all who believe in him can enter into that kingdom and enjoy eternal life. But then in chapter 5, Jesus is rejected. He's essentially put on trial for claiming to be one with God the Father. But in his defense... Jesus points to the works he does and to the testimony of Moses in the scriptures saying that all of it points to him. In chapter 6, Jesus does a miracle that makes him look a lot like Moses. And people rightly identify him in verse 14 as the promised prophet like Moses, the one who was to come. And so they immediately try and make Jesus king. But it's for the wrong reason. They want a king to fix their surface level problems in this world. But Jesus came to be and do so much more. In our passage today, Jesus draws out their why. And he tells us it's not good enough. Here's how we must respond. Put all your effort into receiving the food that lasts for eternal life. 
put all your effort into receiving the food that lasts for eternal life. And here's how the text encourages us to do that. First, search for the real bread. That's in verses 22 through 26. Search for the real bread. Second, work for the real bread. That's in verses 27 through 34. Work for the real bread. And third, come to Jesus. Verses 35 through 40. So search, work, come. So first, search for the real bread. Look at verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now this is the next day, verse 22. So it's important to think about what happened the day before. Jesus had just slipped away from the crowds when they were trying to make him king to get to a mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples decided that it was best to head back home across the Sea of Galilee. And in the darkness of night, in the middle of a storm, Jesus walks on water to his disciples and they miraculously arrive on shore. Well, the next day, this crowd that Jesus has just fed miraculously, apparently has seen the disciples go off alone, and yet they can't find Jesus. And so they climb into these boats, and they head to Capernaum, verse 24, looking for Jesus. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now Jesus doesn't answer their question about timing, but about their search. They ask, when did you get here? And Jesus answers the question they assume they already know how to answer. Why are we looking for you? Verse 26, Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate loaves and were were filled. You see, the day before, the miracle that Jesus did was eye-opening for them. Because after Moses delivered God's people from slavery in Egypt, they were in their wilderness without any food. And so through Moses, God provided bread from heaven to sustain them on their journey to the promised land. Well, here this crowd was yesterday, following Jesus in a remote place, unable to buy food, and the only thing available is one boy's small lunch. Jesus gives thanks to God and multiplies that one meal to feed a multitude. And in verses 14 through 15, they rightly conclude from the sign that Jesus is the promised prophet like Moses and should be king. But apparently, they only want a certain kind of king. A king that will take care of their earthly needs, like food, or like deliverance from Rome. They're not looking for a Messiah king to deliver them from sin and to give them eternal life with God. So Jesus tells them, you're not looking for me because you saw the sign. Which is an odd thing to say, right? Of course they are. If Jesus didn't do the miracle the day before, they wouldn't have tried to make him king. And they wouldn't be looking for him now. But Jesus is talking about the real significance of the sign. So that's not why they're looking for him. They're hardly going beyond the sign itself. It's like pointing with a dog. You ever tried to point a dog somewhere with your finger? They just sniff your finger. They don't understand the purpose of a pointed finger. Right? They, just, they just go to the finger. Well, that's what these people are doing. They're not looking for Jesus because they really saw the sign. 
So Jesus reveals the motives of the heart. You're looking for me because you have some basic needs and desires for food that were met. When it comes to their search for Jesus, their why is off. They're looking for a rescue, but not a rescuer. So having enjoyed the benefit of this miracle and real practical needs being met, they're looking to make him king so they can enjoy more practical benefits. And Jesus says, you're missing the real significance of the sign. And therefore, you're missing the real benefit. It's not the bread. Okay, you had your stomachs filled. That's why you're here. But it's not about the bread. Jesus knows why they're searching for him, and it doesn't really make him their king. Because what will they do when he's on the cross? What will they do when they understand that following Jesus means to suffer like him? When the benefits that he brings may not come in this world and won't in the fullest sense. You see, Jesus truly sees the crowd. And he calls them out for being like fair weather fans. Yesterday was good. You got what you want. That's why you're looking for me. But you're not looking for me for me because of who I am. What about you? What's your why for coming to church today? What are you really looking for? The crowds of these verses, no doubt, still fill up churches today everywhere. I mean, these people knew their Bibles well enough to recognize that Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke of. But clearly, Bible knowledge isn't good enough. And crowds of people today flood into churches who may like studying the Bible. And they may give to the church just like that little boy gave his small meal. But the rest of the week, they basically live the same life as the moral person down the street. Because ultimately, they have the same why. They just want a good life. They just want to make the best of today. So deep down, going to church is, is, is just practically helpful for gaining a good community. A good reputation. And good guidance for every part of life. It helps them feel good. And they believe it puts God on their side. But what they're really excited about is the payoff. The payoff of success at work, at home, and one day, retirement. And since God is good, they kind of expect God to give them this kind of life. Listen, I'm really glad that everyone is here today. But what is our attitude the rest of the week? What's the aim of your life? Are you really looking for Jesus? It might not be so obvious. But it becomes more clear when we suffer and we get angry at God. Or as time goes on without seeing the kind of changes we want, we care less and less about what the Bible says. Or when you finally get what you want and no longer feel a pressing need to be involved with the church or to pray fervently for God's mercy and grace. What kind of a king or savior do you really want Jesus to be for you? I think oftentimes because... We want him to be a very practical help to us in our surface level needs and problems or for our worldly desires. We actually end up on a search for something or someone other than Jesus. Is there anything that you find yourself going back to again and again in order to satisfy some, some longing or some desire, or in order to escape some problem, even if it's simply in a daydream that you keep having. 
Anything you're pursuing that you think will change everything for you? Or make you happy? Parents, I think it's important that we display and disciple our kids in the search for what the sign is really all about. It's not the bread, but Jesus. Kids, you might be here today um, because your parents made you come. And that's why you come to church every week. My parents make me. But be thankful for that and learn to come to church for God. Not so that you can get something from God, like a good life and good things, or even a pat on the back for doing a good job. Learn to come to church to have a relationship with Jesus. Coming for that reason will help you find a reason to really live. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. Because have you thought deeply about these questions? Have you thought deeply about what you really need? Do you know what you're really searching for? According to Jesus, it's easy to set the bar too low. When we make life all about this world, then we'll search for life in the things of this world. And when we think we've found it, we'll give ourselves to it. We'll spend our time and energy and resources and never be satisfied or help, even if we actually get it. But then that raises an important point. It's not just the search for real bread that matters. Once we've found it, how do we obtain it? That brings us to the second way that we must pursue the bread that lasts for eternal life. Work for the real bread. Work for the real bread. Look at verse 27. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Jesus recognizes that everyone who searches for life is in some way going to spend their energy on finding and obtaining it. But Jesus tells this crowd, there are two kinds of bread and you're working for the wrong one. It won't bring you life. So even though they're searching for Jesus right now, he wants them to see what they've always been doing. Right? It's not like they were doing nothing the day before yesterday. Uh, maybe some in this crowd were, were focused on, on keeping the religious traditions. Uh, maybe some were looking for a new leader like Jesus. But most of them were probably just living their lives like most people. Working to make ends meet. You know, just taking care of the daily problems that are always coming at us. Because most people are just trying to live the best life they can. But let's be honest. Life's pretty dissatisfying when the work you do is really about a paycheck. You know, when everything that you're doing is really just about putting food on the table and making it through the next day. Now, that's all good work worth doing, and we have to do it. And so being able to put food on the table is something that we should be thankful for. But still... We all know that that's not what life's really about. And yet most people, even the rich, are essentially living the same way. Uh, Maybe there are more pleasures, less problems, but they all just come come and go along with the rest of life. And is that really what life's all about? I mean, actually having the best life we can and things that come and go each day. Jesus says you shouldn't be concerned with perishable things. But if we're honest, that's all we tend to care about. I mean, how much energy do we spend trying to make more money for experiences and things that fade away? Or how much time do we spend caring for these bodies and what we feed these bodies? Maybe we focus on our life's work or our family, even the good of the whole planet. And these are good things. I mean, none of these things are bad. A life is meant to be enjoyed. The Bible has a very high view of the body. body. We ought to take care of our health. Uh, Work can be meaningful and good. Our close relationships, like our family, are gifts from God that echo in eternity. But they shouldn't be your version of bread. 
In other words, they can't be your why for living. They have to fit into your why. Because all of those things, even the very good things, are still perishing. They're the kind of bread that will come and go. You see, when God provided bread in the wilderness through Moses, the people were called to trust God each day and were told to gather only what they needed for the day. And whatever extra they could gather would rot by the next morning. And if you just picture your whole life as if it's just one day, then that's what all the things of this world are like. As we spend our life trying to gather as much as we can, more than we can, so that we can have the life that we want. But the next day, it rots away. It's all perishing. So Jesus says, your search for life shouldn't be in something that's going to perish. Doesn't that seem obvious? Don't search for life in something that's dying. And everything in this world is perishing. So does that seem fair? I mean, come on, Lord. Everywhere is where we live right now. Is Jesus saying that we just shouldn't care? Not at all. Remember, God provided bread in the wilderness. He knows what we need. Jesus looks at this crowd with compassion and determined to feed them. It was his idea. Feed them. He cares about everything. He cares about where we live. But in Matthew 6.25, Jesus says that life is more than food. And the body is more than clothing. And the Father knows how to provide these things. So, don't worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the Gentiles, that's unbelievers, eagerly seek all these things. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. When we eagerly seek the kingdom of earth first, we miss out on the kingdom of heaven where real life is. God is forever. He is life. If we seek Him first, His kingdom, we will get life. That's why Jesus warns us that the desire for riches choke out the word. Or how the the cares of this world will keep us from following him. Because he's otherworldly. And therefore so is the real Christian. We don't eagerly seek and work for what's perishing. So we don't spend all our time and energy on getting rich. We're not even looking for real life in our health excessively obsessing over what we can do to extend this temporary life just a few years or maybe a decade. It's still going to end. Again, those are all good things. We should take care of our bodies. But we have even greater priorities than anything important in this world. Namely, Jesus. More specifically, life with him. And so before we consume the news each day, we consume the Bible. Rather than filling our Sunday mornings and evenings with even more entertainment, we prioritize gathering with one another to hear God's word and sing his praises. So church, make sure your calendars and your budget fit a kingdom priority. Make sure your habits aren't just about having a healthy body or being emotionally healthy, but that your habits are good for you spiritually. And we try to instill this in the life of our church by the way that we uh, have a a rhythm of members meetings, of of gathering, what we do with the uh, directory. Or as new members come in, we try to give them three books to read with three different people over time so that we all develop a habit of setting aside time to get with God's people to do one another spiritual good. 
All these things are done because we are seeking a different kingdom. Our real life is in the world to come. And that will never pass away. So what are you working for? Have you set the bar too low? If you want life, you won't find it in this world, which is perishing. Nothing in this world lasts forever, including your body. But when that perishes, the soul doesn't. The soul doesn't drift into meaninglessness, nothingness. The resurrection of Jesus proves that much. The man who died, came back to life, is God. And his word tells us that this world won't be our final experience. We will all die. But the real death is facing God's judgment forever. But Jesus tells us that in God's love for sinners, he has come into the world to live a perfect life on our behalf. And on the cross, Jesus has taken on our sin, died the death that we deserve, and then he was raised to life. He lives today. So that through faith in him, we can be forgiven and made righteous in God's sight. And therefore, when we die, we will live. We will live forever. And that is good, good news. Unless you're earnestly seeking life in this world. If your hope is in some change of circumstance. If your hope is in finally getting to where you see others are. Then as a church we don't have much to offer you. Because it's the gospel that we believe gives life. That is the good news. Life in this world is always creating new problems, new needs, and new desires that will have to be worked for again and again and again. Everything in this world is like the manna in the wilderness. It always needs to be collected, and then it always goes bad. So don't work for the food that perishes but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which Jesus, the Son of Man, will give you because God the Father has set his approval on him. Are you tracking with Jesus here? The people are, sort of. They they clearly want to work for the right bread. Verse 28, what can we do to perform the works of God, they ask. What's the the work that we can work for the works of, of the works of God, for the works of God? And Jesus answers, verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Now put yourself in their shoes here. This is the man who just multiplied a little so that everyone had their fill and more than enough. Okay? This man can give you daily bread. And yet now he's offering you bread that never goes bad, but gives eternal life. Okay, Jesus, tell us what to do. And it turns out the work isn't something you do, but someone you trust. Because there's no way that you and I can work for God's approval. We've already fallen short. We're spiritual rebels deserving of God's wrath. We deserve to perish ourselves. But the Father has set his seal of approval on his Son. So, John 3.16, everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. The work that God calls you to do only requires that you cast yourself upon Jesus and throw your life in with him. To trust in the work that he has done and follow him by faith is to believe in God's Son and therefore live for the hope of His coming kingdom that will last forever. But that's a huge ask for people. Jesus isn't just asking these guys to say a prayer, call themselves His followers, and and wear some jewelry around His neck. He's not saying just, just believe and then go on. This is is not that sign of easy believism. 
People followed rabbis in hopes of a better future. But to have a rabbi was in some sense to become something like a slave. There were some tasks that you would not be asked to do, but in general, it was to be a part of that rabbi's life and serve them. To give up what you were doing before and become like your teacher. So this crowd understands the commitment that Jesus is asking for. And therefore, they want some kind of guarantee. Verse 30. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? They asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. They're asking for a sign because when Moses led their ancestors out of Egypt, they ate manna in the wilderness. And that was a lot more people than a crowd. Right? That was a nation. And so if Jesus, you're greater than Moses, if you're the Messiah, then surely you're going to do something greater than Moses. What's, what's, what's your sign? If you want us to do the work of God and believe you, what's the work you're going to do so that we may see and believe? It's so ironic. It's almost unbelievable. They just saw A sign. (laughs) He fed a multitude. But now they want another one. And we see this all the time. You know, people haven't really changed today. When there's a new belief that requires a great change in us, or a, a change in the way that we live, there's a very strong human impulse to demand evidence or a sign that's so compelling that we must believe. Then again, when it comes to affirming what we already believe, or if it benefits us without requiring anything from us, everything sounds right. You know? We'll blindly follow people that promise us good things without any costs. Now, certainly food that never perishes is what people want. And you think that that means that they would be ready to believe Jesus. But Jesus just said, I'm not trying to be your bread king. You didn't really see the sign. And so they understand that Jesus wants to be something different than what they're searching for. And he's asking for their allegiance. It may be good, but they want proof. And if that's your impulse today, just know that you'll never accept the evidence that's there and is sufficient. Just like this crowd, you'll always ask for more. People are stubborn and staunch skeptics when a change of belief comes with personal costs. When it doesn't make life in this world immediately better. I mean, strangely, the crowds would be happier with More bread from yesterday. Yesterday they saw the sign and were ready to make him king. But now that he's talking about a different kind of bread, they're skeptics of this guy. If you're here and you're not a Christian, again, we're glad you're here. And we understand that that you may think that Christians believe what we do because of our environment. You know, or because it works for us. uh, Things like that. But according to the Bible, the the presence of real Christians in the world is amazing. Because the real benefits that are promised aren't for this world. The The only thing for this world that's promised are the costs. And those are real. There are plenty plenty of advantages to being a nominal Christian when the culture is pro church. But for most of history, that's not the case. And that's increasingly the case today. It's hard being a Christian in this culture. I'm sure you can talk to any one of our college students after the service and and ask about about the spiritual battle that they're in on campus. The evidence 
for faith in Christ is sufficient and reasonable. But it's only acceptable if the Spirit of God first works in us. It's the Spirit who reveals our own spiritual poverty, the bankruptcy of this world, and the treasure of Christ. In a minute, Jesus will tell us that much. But without his help, we demand proof, some sign, because miraculously multiplying a small meal to feed a multitude isn't good enough. I mean, Jesus just did what they asked for, but they need more. Jesus tells them, Moses didn't give you bread, God did, and that bread perished. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And they're so obsessed with their idea of a king, so blinded by what they see as their most basic needs, that they miss Jesus right here. It's like they're waiting for this new Moses at this point that Jesus is talking to call down some other kind of bread from the sky. Right? Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus is right in front of them. When you understand the true bread the Father has given us, the real work is to believe in the one he has sent and go to him. Not something else. Not somewhere else. But to go to him. Which brings us to the final point. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Verse 35. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me. And yet you do not believe. You want this bread? Come to me, Jesus says. I am the bread of life. Better than what God gave your ancestors in the wilderness through Moses is what God has given you in me. Food and water are some of the most basic needs for life. But Jesus is better. He's saying, no one comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. It sounds a lot like his conversation with the woman at the well. If you drink the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. Eat the bread that Jesus gives and you'll never be hungry again. How do you do that? It's in verse 35. Come to me. Believe in me. Coming to Jesus and believing in him are the same thing. You come to Jesus today by completely relying upon his work for you. That's the work. It's faith. Coming to Jesus and believing in him are the same thing. Because the Father has set his seal of approval on him, you get God's approval by relying on him. And Jesus says, all who come to him like that will find what they're really looking for. No one who believes in Jesus will ever be thirsty again. The spirit of Jesus is to our souls what food and water is to our bodies. His spirit is what sustains us in this world of sin and evil. He satisfies us. And that fundamental yearning that we all have in our hearts. But then that raises the question, why do Christians then still complain about life? Why do we still struggle with sin? If this is true, why do we still go looking for dirty water and cracked six cisterns where there's no life if we have Jesus? Well, the promise of verse 35 is an already and not yet sort of promise. Jesus has come. He has given us his spirit. And so we can be content in this world. Uh, Paul could say from a Philippian jail that he had learned the secret of being content. And so whether well fed or hungry, having a little or a lot, he could do all things. Meaning he could endure all things and be content through Christ who strengthens him. Christ was the bread of life 
that Paul was feasting on in a Philippian jail. Christ was what he hoped for in the next life. And it made him content in all circumstances. Jesus is sufficient for life in this world. So verse 35 is true right now. And yet, these bodies are still covered with sinful flesh. And the kingdom of God hasn't yet fully come. And so we still struggle. Because we're not yet experiencing real life in his kingdom. His kingdom hasn't come in full. So we haven't fully experienced real life. And therefore, we still struggle. As long as we're in these bodies, in this world, there will always be a temptation to look for life outside of Christ. Because life in this world is hard. And all of us want immediate relief. All of us in this world want immediate pleasure. And so maybe you have a hard week at a job you don't love. And the chance to escape to anything sounds like life. Whether it's a casino, porn, the fridge, or an affair. Or maybe you're single, and after a hard week, you come home to an empty house, and you're lonely. And so it's not surprising in that moment if you think that what you really need for life is a relationship with another person. And you struggle with being discontent with that circumstance. But Jesus says, that's not true. Those are lies of the flesh. Everything in this world is perishing. Nothing in this world can satisfy the soul. So you need to come to me. And we can do that with the help of His Spirit. His Spirit works through His Word and through His people to nourish and sustain our souls in Christ. And as long as we go to Him, we can be content and persevere until the day where Jesus fulfills every longing forever. That's why Jesus repeats this promise in verses 39, 40, 44, and 54. He will raise us up on the last day to eternal life. That's the focus of never being hungry or thirsty again. All the pleasures of God will be experienced in the pleasures of life because Christ will fill all things when he raises us up to eternal life in his kingdom. That's where your search for life today must take you. It's what you must work for. And so you must come to Jesus by faith. You need to come to Jesus even more than you need food and water. Life is about a person. What Jesus is saying is not, is, isn't anything about a religious system here. He's not talking about fleeting pleasures that he can provide or a temporary need that he can fill. He's talking about a person, himself, a God. Listen, if you're fortunate enough to have food and water for the rest of your life, you're still going to die. And then what? But if you have Jesus, whether you die today or tomorrow or a hundred years from now, then what's next is life with Him. If you have to choose between basic necessities and worldly pleasures or Jesus, choose Jesus. Throughout church history, there have always been Christians who have had to face maintaining their faith in Christ or being killed. And in that most basic life or death question, many have chosen Jesus. And they live. And yet here's this crowd with real needs, looking for a sign, seeing Jesus, and they don't believe. Because seeing isn't always believing when what you're looking for isn't a savior from sin, but someone to simply make your life better. The problems and desires of this world are strong enough to keep us from being interested in the real life that Jesus offers in the future. So who will come to Jesus? What's our hope? 
and persevering by faith when this is the world we live in. Verse 37. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. Praise God. People who come to Jesus aren't the people who can earn God's approval. They're not a subgroup of sinners who get it somehow. Everyone who comes to Jesus trusting in him by faith, who will receive eternal life, every single one of them is someone that the Father has chosen to give to the Son. Jesus doesn't say, everyone who comes to me, the Father will give to me. But everyone that the Father has given me will come to me. And therein lies our hope. That's our hope for actually believing. That's our hope for persevering in that faith. Now there's mystery here. And one of the greatest theological questions that you can ask is one that you don't ask enough. Why me? If you and I have an answer to that, then we're probably in danger of missing out on Jesus. The only way you look to him as the bread of life is if you know there's no answer you can come up with to that question. Because you know there's no reason about you that would warrant God's love and grace. If there is something that you believe about yourself that would make you worthy of that, then there's probably also something in this world that he owes you. And you'll keep living that good life worthy of God's love so that he'll keep giving you the blessings for life to make it better. But that's not the kind of savior Jesus is. The best we can do in answering, why me? Is to look at these verses and unpack them. Theologians refer to it as the covenant of redemption between the father and the son. Here's what Jesus is saying. In the love that the Son had for the Father, He desired to purchase a people with His blood that would bring the Father glory by enjoying Him and becoming like Him. And in love for the Son, God the Father determined that His Son's death for Him would not be in vain, but that He would be glorified. And so rather than stepping back and crossing his fingers, just hoping that some people might take advantage of this gift that he has given the world and and his son and believe, God graciously chooses people and powerfully draws them to himself in love so that he might give his son a bride who would be with him forever and sing his praise. But why you or me? Of the love of God. And that's it. No one who comes is better than someone else who doesn't. It's just the grace of God in their lives that draws them to Jesus. And in love, Jesus says in verse 37, that all who come to me, I will never cast out. So if you're looking for life, come to Jesus. Nowhere in scripture are we told to figure out if we're someone God has chosen before we come to Jesus. If you're looking for life, just come. We're told to come and believe. And all who do receive eternal life. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I trust that you're wanting to live a life that's full of meaning and purpose. And that won't be lived in vain. But don't set the bar too low. 
The life that you're made for is the one where you can know and enjoy the presence of God in a perfect world. And nothing is more meaningful than knowing and enjoying God and for it to last forever. So listen, just come. Put your faith in Christ and turn away from living for yourself in this world. There's more. And if you're here today and you're a struggling Christian, Dealing with the temptation to sin. Just believing the lies of the devil again and again. Or you're doubting Christ. Keep believing the gospel. Don't believe the lies. Even if you thought you were a Christian and now doubt it after this sermon. Here's the wonderful truth. Come to Jesus right now and he won't turn you away. It doesn't matter if you've been doubting up to this point. Who cares? Don't try to figure out if I am or not. Just come to Jesus. That's all that matters. He won't turn you away. And there's a real sense in which all of us as believers are regularly repeating what we did the first day we believed and got saved. Not that we're saved again, but that again and again we are having to trust Christ for all of our righteousness. And he is faithful to forgive us according to his shed blood for every one of our sins. The assurance that Christ gives us in this passage is that God gives us to Christ and Jesus doesn't turn away. So if we believe that Jesus is God, if that's you, and you believe that Jesus is worthy of your life, if we believe that we're sinners in need of his grace. And our desire is to obey him. If we believe all those things, then our doubts aren't trustworthy. If you believe all those things and you're a doubting Christian, that's a normal experience. But your doubts aren't trustworthy. Jesus died for a bride that God chose to give him. And so something happened on the cross 2,000 years ago for all who believed. Something happened on that day, and it's not like Jesus can go back and undo it. So what that means is that those whom God calls will come to Jesus. And those who believe are secured and preserved by Jesus so that even in death, they will live. So the invitation to everyone is to come to Jesus. But what are you looking for? Let's pray. Oh God, open our eyes to the glory of Christ. And in your grace towards us, make us desire him. Oh God, do this for our joy and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.